All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you once again for your words of commissioning. I'm beyond excited to head overseas and serve in a way that I'm deeply excited about. It's something I've been passionate about for a long time, so the appeal of this specific kind of kingdom work is strong for me. It just, it makes sense, you know? It's a great blend of my passions and interests and abilities. It just makes sense, and that makes me excited. But I'm not totally naive. I know that there's going to be very hard times. Frankly, there's been hard times in prep already. But I take a bit of comfort in how the role and mission seems to fit me, despite the challenges in it. But what if I get thrown into prison? That's an extreme example. It's not going to happen. But a better question might be, what if this role ends up being, or the two roles, I guess, end up being the opposite of what I expect? What if they don't seem like they fit? What then? That seems to be the case with the Apostle Paul here. For years now, probably even decades, he's been the consummate missionary of the first century. No one has traveled like he has. No one's gone across the Roman Empire like he has. He spent two weeks in this city and two years in another. He's gone everywhere that the Spirit has called him to preach. And this is the chapter where that all changes, or the section where that all changes. From here on out, the Spirit has Paul in chains. He's captured at the beginning of Acts 21, and he spends the rest of the book with handcuffs on. As far as Acts tells us, he'll never be free the way we think of freedom again. Never free to just drop whatever he's currently doing and go to a new city, respond to a call. Those days are over for him. He's arrested at the Jerusalem temple in chapter 21 for defiling it with Gentile presence. He didn't, for the record, um, but that doesn't really seem to matter all that much. He's guilty in the eyes of the mob. N.T. Wright writes that they had dragged Paul out of the temple and says, Luke, the gates were shut. A sentence heavy with meaning, rather like John's comment that when Judas went out, it was night. That was the last time that Paul would see the inside of that beautiful temple. It would only be another 15 years or so before it was destroyed, never to be rebuilt. That's the divider right there. The gates were shut. That sentence literally means that Paul can't go back into the temple, but for all intents and purposes, it might as well be the closing of prison gates. From that sentence onward, Paul is a man in chains. Now, we might be tempted to go, why him? And I'll admit, that's long been my reaction to this last stretch of Acts. Why Paul? Why couldn't it have been anyone else? You'll see if you look throughout this passage that Paul can be visited pretty easily by his friends or his providers so why couldn't it have been someone who lived a less transitory life? You know, someone like James. As important as James was, he probably stood of, could have still continued more or less the same in his duties as a church leader from prison. He could still talk and discuss and write letters and intercede. He wasn't mobile like Paul was. For Paul, this seems like an absolute tragedy. He's like a bird in a cage. The one guy with the willingness and the bravery and maybe the foolhardiness to actually go trailblaze for the gospel is the one guy who can't anymore. It doesn't seem like it fits at all. What is this? Is this some kind of a cruel joke? And, and that's a valid reaction. At least it's my reaction, so I'm going to say it's valid. It's, it's probably one that we feel in our own lives as well. I, I hope that I don't feel like this in my upcoming missionary efforts, like it doesn't fit. I really don't. But I might. It's one thing to go through a hardship if it makes sense. Um, maybe that's a little callous. I don't mean it to be. 
But if we're going through a tough time, but we can see a reason for it, that we can see a why, um, that makes it a bit more bearable. John Bunyan, uh, a 17th century pastor, was thrown into prison for 12 years, and he couldn't serve during that time. He couldn't preach. He couldn't lead. But during those years in prison, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. And Pilgrim's Progress has been translated into over 200 languages and considered one of the most widely read, influential books of all time. So with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and go, okay, yeah, he's suffered, but look what came out of it. This, this period of suffering fit him, fit his skills. He was able to use his abilities to advance the kingdom. This kind of seems like the opposite. All of Paul's abilities, his passion for missionary outreach, his experience in reaching Gentiles, all of it's going to waste as he's shackled to a prison wall. Or is it? Maybe not. We're going to see this morning that Paul is actually within God's will in this, and he's having his audience changed, but not his ministry, and he's actually going to have his big goal, his big dream fulfilled too. Okay, so first up, Paul receives two visions over the course of these last five chapters of Acts that encourage him. Otherwise, he probably would have felt those exact same emotions we were describing of why and despair and whatnot. And maybe he still did, but these visions gave him courage. The first one is in Acts 23.11 and says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. And the second one takes place on the ship, and, and we don't hear it directly, but Acts 27, 23, Paul says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Both of these visions serve to bolster Paul's courage. They remind him of his mission. They both come at opportunities when he probably would be feeling at his lowest, out of the Sanhedrin almost mobbed and then on a shipwreck almost going down. Um, I was at a wedding yesterday where they referred to the famous Jeremiah 29, 11 verse about God knowing the plans he has for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. But they didn't mention very strongly that the plans in, those verse, in that verse is exile. It's not a nice thought, but the people receiving that verse were going into captivity, and they would probably die there. That was the plan God had for them. And of course, their descendants would return, and there would be hope for Israel, and God would redeem his people. But still, the immediate plan was not ideal. And Paul's in the exact same situation here. There is a plan. Now, the plan is to remain in chains and be sent far away from his home. But it is God's plan, and he's in it. And also, the mission is what Paul has wanted for a long time. He's long wanted to go to Rome, to see the believers there, to encourage them. But he's never been able to. He's finally getting his chance here. Now, I think he probably would have preferred to walk in without chains on, but he's going to Rome all the same, and he's going God's way. He could have forced it earlier. It was a dream of his, but he hasn't let his own ambition get in the way of God's plans. I found Fernando's writing on this to be pretty profound. He wrote, it is good to dream great dreams, but we must place all these dreams at the altar of God and bow to his sovereignty, believing that he knows what is best for us. And we should also be conscious of the fact that when it comes to our ambitions, it's easy for fleshly desire to cloud godly ambition. Since it's difficult for us to distinguish between these two, we must look to God to send obstacles along the way that alert us to dangers. 
The idea of asking for obstacles really jumped out to me here. Um, do I do that? I, probably not. It, is a God-sent obstacle what prevented Paul from going to Rome before? Maybe. And it might have seemed like that was the case now, too. But these visions have assured Paul that these obstacles are not to slow him down. God wants him to go to Rome. Now, we probably won't get the same kind of bolstering visions that Paul did. You might, and that would be incredible. But it might be encouraging to know, even if we don't, that as Paul did, as Paul knew, that God is moving and active even when things seem counter to what makes sense, to what fits. And ultimately, it's on a need-to-know basis, and he's the only one that needs to know, as frustrating as that can be. (laughs) So, with all that being said, what was the actual game plan here? What was happening? Paul's been reaching out to common people for a long time. That's not where he is anymore. He's in the domain of the powerful now. That's where God has him as a witness. And as we observe the the lies and the power plays and the favors and the assassination attempts and the deceit that goes on here, we'll see that this is a whole different ballgame. He starts with the centurion, but we'll skip that and come back to it. The start of Acts 23 is about Paul before the Sanhedrin, though he's not there for very long. He survives the riot, arrives at his preliminary trial, and is immediately punched in the face. And the high priest priest tells a guard to strike him. And Paul responds with, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, which is a classic Paul moment there. And then when they say, how dare you talk to the high priest like that? Paul goes, sorry, I didn't recognize him, which I take to mean he didn't recognize him as the high priest because he's not acting like one. And then he immediately clocks that the Sanhedrin's made of both Pharisees and Sadducees, who are divided on the issue of the resurrection, uh, and so claims, brothers, I'm here today because of the resurrection, and just immediately divides the Sanhedrin. And that's kind of it. Paul kind of picks them apart and leaves them in an uproar. And it doesn't really solve anything, but I think this is our first clue that Paul might actually be pretty well suited to this, too, to speaking into power. He's fiery, he knows the law, and he won't back down from anyone. He's innocent as a dove and shrewd as a serpent. Back to the centurion, who we learn is a man named Claudius Lysias. Paul has been kind of holding on to this card that he was a Roman citizen right until Claudius is about to whip him, at which point he goes, eh, you can't do that. Um, Again, he knows exactly what he's doing. And with a hit out on Paul's head right now, Claudius decides to send him to Felix, the governor at Caesarea. And with him comes this message. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned that he's a Roman citizen. And I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin, and I found out that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. And when I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. That is not literally true. <laughs> like, it's, it's vaguely true. But Claudius is embellishing a bunch of details here to make himself sound better. That's the kind of politicking that goes on in these circles. Parsons writes that Claudius is willing to rearrange and suppress the facts to put himself in a better light. In the letter to Felix, Claudius suggests that he intervened in Paul's behalf because he was a Roman citizen. But the audience knows that Claudius at first thought Paul was a revolutionary and learned of Paul's citizenship only after he'd placed him in chains and nearly had him flogged, a point that Claudius conveniently admits. In both instances, the discrepancy suggests that the Roman officials need to present a public image that partially conceals the truth about their actions and motive. 
Claudian's self-assurance and in decision-making is marred with interests of self-protection. End of quote. The exact same thing is going to happen later when Festus writes a letter. These men are selfish and power-hungry. They'll lie to protect themselves without second thought, and that's all they do. And the situation here is that Paul kind of ends up in a sort of limbo where he's a prisoner under Felix, the governor, but he's not convicted because he hasn't been tried yet, but the trial's not happening either, so he's just kind of in jail indefinitely. And Felix does send for him a few times, and Paul shares his story and then shares Christ. And this does something to Felix. It intrigues him. I think that's often true when the gospel is shared with people. They're intrigued because there's a part of them, however deep down, that knows it's true and is drawn to it. Verse 24 reads, He sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talking about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. The text doesn't give us a whole lot about who Felix was, but luckily, history does. Um, he kind of sucked. That's an obvious oversimplification, but Felix was a man who loved the benefits of power. He loved that he didn't have to tame his passions or desires. Parsons continues that in its immediate context, the virtues practiced by the followers of the way probably struck uncomfortably close to home for Felix. And here the initially favorable impression of Felix's response to Paul begins to sour. By many accounts, Felix was notoriously lacking in terms of righteousness, justice, self-control. Tacitus wrote that Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust. Josephus records various miscarriages of justice in Felix's dealing with the Jews that finally led to a Jewish delegation pleading its case before Nero, he also had notorious public affairs, eventually stealing another man's wife. It makes sense how Felix would hear what God calls us to and calls us away from and become afraid. I read this passage and go, Paul's got him. The Spirit is convicting this man. But Felix refuses to actually let Paul's words set in. He's too spooked by them. He hears them, but he won't listen to them. Fernando writes that top officials and powerful people commonly show a cordial interest in what religious leaders say, and we can use this as a stepping stone to sharing the gospel with them, as Paul did with Felix and Agrippa. But we must remember that though many such people will be interested in the gospel and testify to being blessed by it, they may not be willing to repent of their sin and turn to God alone for salvation. Nebuchadnezzar saw God's hand acting powerfully on two occasions and even praised God and made pronouncements about him in Daniel 2 and 3. But he wasn't converted until he was brought to the end of himself and was forced to affirm that the Most High God reigns. The fact that they're closer to power means that they're less likely to let go of their power and submit themselves to the great power. The call of Christ is to give yourself up and those in power find that very difficult. It's an unfortunate fact, similar to Christ warning us that it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What to get for someone who has everything, right? It's hard for those who have everything to acknowledge that they still need something. That's why it's so desperately important for us to remember how lost we are and how much we need God. This was a frustrating time for Paul. All that for Felix and, and nothing, right? There's a gut punch at the end of chapter 24 where after we hear of the gospel scaring Felix, verse 26 reads, 
At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Two years, just like that, in the blink of an eye. The previous passage had slowed way down. There had been 1,800 words used to cover a two-week span of Paul's life. And then just like that, two, we- two years goes by. Paul must have been terribly disheartened here to feel like the world is going by him as he's in prison. I can't imagine. And yet he did have that vision from the Lord to hold on to. He knows that he's in the Lord's plan right now, even if it doesn't feel like it at all. Now, we might think, what a tragedy. But is it? Paul's not silent here. We just heard that he's speaking to Felix frequently. He's not speaking to the masses anymore like he's used to. He's speaking to rulers now. And that probably took some getting used to, and it probably wasn't his comfort zone. And it might not be what he wants, but it's where God has him. Even if it's frustrating, I hope he was able to encourage himself with that. We get a similar gut punch at the end of chapter 26. Paul has appealed to Caesar because it seems like the chances of him getting assassinated were only growing. This was his safest bet at this point. And he gets a hearing before King Agrippa in order to fill a letter for Caesar. King Agrippa is described entering Caesarea with great pomp and ceremonies. Once again, these are people who think a great deal of themselves. And King Agrippa, by all accounts, seems like a man who had his feet in two worlds, the Jewish and the pagan one, and he quite enjoyed the benefits of both. So he was reluctant to commit too hard to either one or the other. Now, we might look at all these people in authority, and here anyway, and go, these guys are the worst. They're, they're so selfish. And I would counter, good thing Paul's here, right? This might be kind of like Esther. Paul was pulled out of his comfort zone and where he wanted to be um, for, such, for such a time as this. Fernando does warn that there's a good chance that they're humoring Paul, right? That they might never choose to surrender to God. But does that mean it's not worth them hearing the gospel? Of course not. Paul's being faithful and sharing, and the rest is up to God. And Paul really does hammer him. He makes an impassioned defense here, not just of himself, but of the gospel. And when it's clear that he doesn't deserve death, King Agrippa goes, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And for the longest time, this was another gut-wrenching verse for me. Like, why did you appeal, Paul? You were so close. It's like a thriller or something, to see someone so close to freedom and safety and then to miss it by just that much. He could have been free. But look what came before. Paul almost gets King Agrippa to convert. I don't know, maybe he wasn't that close. But he's kind of got him on the ropes here. He's presented Agrippa with an ultimatum that he can't both sides his way out of. Either Agrippa believes in the prophets or he doesn't. But if he does, the prophets are pointing to Christ pretty undeniably. Agrippa, naturally, doesn't answer this question. Like the politician he is, he sidesteps it by asking, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replies, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. My point here is that Paul is exactly where he needs to be. His abilities and gifts and boldness are on full display, sharing the truth with these men. So, Maybe our reaction shouldn't be, oh, he was so close. 
It should be, phew, that was a close one. He almost went free. And then he would have been outside God's mission for him right now. It's a good thing that he stayed in prison. And so now we come pretty much to the end of the book here. Paul sets out for Rome, a prisoner on a sea voyage. And it goes wrong, and they're shipwrecked, but he does eventually make it to Rome. And after all the setup of Paul being destined for Rome, that his mission is to testify before the emperor, you'd think there'd be a big significant event in Rome to end the book. Like the climax would be Paul before Nero or something. Christianity goes from a few Judean fishermen to the center of the whole world, right? And that'd be a nice arc. That's not really what happens. The story sort of ends before any great confrontation. If we read the book like a story, the story of the early church, not just a journal, then the climax of the book isn't really arriving in Rome so much as it's the journey to Rome. And Paul's an experienced traveler at this point, but he's never been through something like this. This voyage to Rome seems doomed. The shipwreck is one of the most gripping procedural sections of the whole Testament. The previous section had been very minutia-driven in legal affairs. It kind of read like a courtroom drama, right? Now, it's very minutia-driven as a travelogue. We get detailed accounts about where they stopped and for how long and when they started again and why they made those decisions. Many commentaries I read pointed out that an important detail here is that the Israelites were not a seafaring people. The ocean was a terrifying place for them, a place of chaos. Thus, it was easy to read divine action into its power and confusion. Parsons writes that in the Old Testament, God uses the sea to reverse creation and judge evil humanity in Genesis 68. God uses the sea to destroy the Egyptians and rescue the Israelites in Exodus 14. God uses the sea to um, God uses a, uses a storm to persuade a stubborn prophet to speak in Jonah 1. Thus, readers would understand the potential disasters involved here. If Paul perishes at sea, he's no doubt guilty of the charges leveled against him. But if he's spared, then he's been honored with divine vindication. It's not so simple as all that, but there's some of that underlying this whole thing. As opposed to seeing Caesar, this voyage kind of serves as the trial of Paul. It's the only one he gets in the book. And since it's not really Paul, but the gospel on trial, it serves as God proving his faithfulness yet again. I was watching a video the other day on the voyage of the ship, the Endurance. Uh, Commanded by Ernest Shackleton, it was an attempt in 1914 to land on and cross Antarctica for the first time. Um, it, It didn't go well. The ship was trapped by the ice and crushed and abandoned and eventually sank. And they actually just discovered the wreckage for the first time, like 14 months ago, I think. It was like last like March or April. They found it finally on, on the, on the seafloor. But anyway, at the time, the crew were stuck on the ice float and trying to get off Antarctica, but trapped. And they eventually jimmy-rigged lifeboats, and they made it back to South America two and a half years later. The world was at war when they returned. It was 1916. But despite being stuck in ice for two and a half years, not a single crew member died. Amazingly, every single person on the Endurance survived. Paul's shipwreck is similarly awful but miraculous. They're in a storm so severe that they can't see the sun or the stars, but the ship holds together. There's 276 people on board, and the ship's been in the storm for 14 days, but they still have enough food to eat at the end. And most importantly, the ship is destroyed on the reef of an island, but every single person makes it to shore. Not a single person dies in the disastrous shipwreck. So, 
We think, oh, God rescued them once again. It, it's over. They made it to shore. They survived. And Paul is out gathering fire, firewood, which I've always thought is a nice detail. He's barely survived death from the elements and execution from the soldiers. And now, immediately, he's serving his captors. He's found a new audience, and he's going to be Jesus to them. But as he does this, a viper bites him. Verse 4 of chapter 28 reads, When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man must be a murderer. Though he escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. This is a very interesting thought. This, I think, is another avenue where the reader's expectations about the voyage as a makeshift trial come in. Paul did survive the shipwreck. He survived the sea. So in one sense, he and God have been proven innocent from the storm, but it's not certain enough. The islanders of Malta evidently believe in this sort of karmic justice. So when they see the snake, they go, ah, even if he escaped the one thing, that was just luck. Now his luck's going to run out, and he'll pay for whatever he's guilty of. Except, of course, that doesn't happen. Paul shakes it off, and he's fine. He's been proven innocent again, and this miracle is God affirming him again in his mission. Paul's second vision was on the ship telling him not to be afraid, that he must stand trial before Caesar. And now... This miracle is kind of a third divine sign that he's on the right path, even if that path has him in chains, guarded, restricted, and stifled. And then Paul heals many people from the island. And to me, this shows once again that Paul's audience has not been removed, simply changed. He's not ministering to anyone from Ephesus or Corinth right now, it's true. He probably wants to be. But here are people who wouldn't have heard the gospel otherwise. And because of Paul's faithfulness, they are now. And so finally, Paul gets to Rome, and he's welcomed by the Roman believers in a really touching moment. He's written the book of Romans addressed to them, but he's never actually met any of them before. But they come outside the city to welcome him. And Luke writes that at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Isn't that great? He, he can't do it alone. He's on his own, but he's supported by the whole body. This is like a missionary journey in some senses, Back in Sidon, he was supplied with, with finances and food by the believers there, and now he's blessed and supplied once again. And we got to wrap up, but the final thing here is that Paul meets with the local Jewish leaders, much as he's done in every city that he stopped at. They have, to come, they have to come to him, of course. He's under house arrest now. This is the final scene of Acts. The Jews there haven't heard of him, which is good. It means he's in the clear, threat-wise. He's not going to be assassinated. And when they ask him to explain Christ, or, and they ask him to explain Christ, which is exactly what he wants to do. And he shares the good news of a Jewish Messiah with these Roman Jews. And some believe and some don't, as it's often been. But it seems like ultimately many don't believe. And so Paul gives his final reaffirmation of his mission to the Gentiles. And he does so in the, Gentile, in the capital of the Gentile world, Rome. And anyone can come to him. The final note here is that Paul stayed in that house for two years and welcomed all who came to see him. And that always kind of read as a bit sad to me, too. Uh, he can't do missions anymore. But here's a slight counter to that. It's not tragic that he finally has a home and isn't wandering. He has a sense of permanence for the first time in his life as a believer. And he has it in the Gentile capital, where he always wanted to go. He could witness till the day he dies there, and there'll be new people each day. What a journey he's undergone, from Pharisee to patron saint of all Gentiles, essentially, right? The last verse, he proclaimed the kingdom of God 
and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What a perfect capper for him. That being said, this does end very abruptly. That's the final verse of Acts. As far as scripture goes, we never hear about Paul testifying before Caesar. We never hear the story of his death, and we're never told directly what the church is up to next. And every time I read the book of Acts and get to the end, I always forget that this is how it ends. There's very little catharsis here. There's some literal textual reasons for this. Um, the most obvious one being that this was all that had happened at the time of writing. This was Luke's most current information. That could be true. It's probably true. But I'm going to submit a more thematic reason is that this is where the application begins. The book just stops because it's our turn now. Parsons writes that it leaves us with the challenge and opportunity to allow the Spirit to write the next chapter of Acts today, in and through us. The Great Commission was admirably taken up by these apostles, but it hasn't been accomplished yet. The end of Acts feels unfinished because we're the ones that are supposed to finish it. And there are some specific applications that we can take from Paul's time in prison. For one, we can see that even when Paul was not where he wanted to be, he was within God's will. We can take comfort in the fact that God can use us wherever we are, whatever our circumstances are, whether we feel like they fit or not. God's will is big enough to handle our discomfort. As an offshoot of that, the people in front of Paul change, but his mission does not. An audience of governors and kings and captains is very different from what he's used to. But they need to hear the gospel all the same. His mission hasn't changed. Similarly, we can know that whether we're in front of friends or colleagues or strangers or even enemies, that our call to be and to proclaim Jesus to them is unchanging. And not to promise too much in that, but Paul's big dream is fulfilled because of his faithfulness. He gets to go to Rome. Similarly, I honestly think that when we earnestly serve God, he grants us our heart's true desires. Maybe not what we think we want, but what we actually want. And it might not be how we imagined it either, but God loves to bless us in unexpected ways. Mostly, though, the big takeaway is to carry on with this, miss with this mission. Be a part of Acts Part 2. The story of the church is being written through us now. Let's not let our forefathers down. And I don't want to pressure you, but I want that to encourage you. Let's serve him boldly through shipwrecks and prisons and whatever else is unexpected, right? The same God that worked through these fishermen and Pharisees is working through us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the examples that we have in Scripture of, of believers that are going through things that are uncomfortable or feel like they don't fit or feel stifling, and yet you still accomplish incredible things through them. We pray that, um, we, we ask, Lord, that you would place us into situations that feel like they fit and feel like we can uh, make incredible use of our, of our passions and abilities to serve you. We ask for that in your name, Lord. But that being said, we also pray, Lord, that when that doesn't happen and when we feel uncomfortable or, or stagnant or, or like there's no progression, we pray that, that you would be at work in us and through us then too and that we would be um, just as faithful and just as, as bold in our serving in those times as well as the good ones. We love you a lot, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would be, um, your spirit would be moving in us and through us this week and that we would be your hands and feet, that we would be Acts Part 2. Praise in your name. Amen.